Hello, and welcome to another in the Hoover Institution series of special election podcasts. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and I am joined today by two guests, Mo Fiorina, the Wendt Family Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and David Brady, Davies Family Senior Fellow at Hoover and also a professor of political science at Stanford. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. All right. Now let's start um, up front with one of the questions that seems to be engendering a lot of debate amongst the, the pundit class, the question of whether this was a a wave election. So some people have been parsing this incredibly closely. There was a piece by Charlie Cook in the National Journal who said, well, it's a wave election, but it wasn't a tsunami election. So um, Dave, let me start with you. Break this down for us. Was 2014 a wave election and is that a classification that that matters or is that something that analysts just sort of engage in to amuse themselves? Well, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville said that when you have frequent elections, you're often in a state of chaos. And uh, and so I think what happens with this frequency elections, people have to have something to say about them. So they're going to debate this question of whether it's a wave election or a tsunami. To me, it's a question of is the election nationalized or not? Nationalized uh, election means that they're not determined by local factors, that there is a degree to which voters are voting on national issues. It seems to me that this issue had a bit of that in that it was sort of a referendum on the Obama presidency. And and so the question is, if it's a wave, then people want to say that there's some sort of mandate uh, that those discussions generally dissipate and are gone uh, within two months. Now, Mo, you've written a lot about partisan polarization and what you refer to as ideological sorting, the fact that the two major parties are becoming more ideologically coherent, I guess we could say. There's fewer liberal Republicans than there used to be. There's fewer conservative Democrats. Uh, to what extent do we see that affect the outcomes of this year's races? Are there places where we saw seats flip from one party to another, where we saw maybe the electorate sorting itself as, as part of the reason why? I think so. I think uh, building on what David just said, one of the reasons the elections have become more nationalized is simply that the parties have become more homogeneous internally. There's not much difference between a Republican anywhere in the country nowadays or a Democrat anywhere in the country. And when you look at the last election, what's impressive is the depth of the Republican wins. Uh, you know, in the House, they only gained about 12 seats, so there's still some recounts going on. But they're up to, the, in terms of their numbers, they're probably the most representative since 1946. But the the election, the, the effect went farther down that they had lots of victories at the state legislative level that I think the latest count I, I saw said that there are probably more state legislatures that are Republican now since the Herbert Hoover election in 1928. And that's what happens when you have the parties sorted like this, that there's no reason to split your ticket and vote for Republican in one election and Democrat in another because all Republicans are pretty much the same and all Democrats are pretty much the same. So people tend to vote for a straight ticket, uh, basically keying off the top of the races. So that's why the elections have become more nationalized. One of the areas where Republicans coming out of the election have been understandably bullish uh, was in the governor's races because not only do you hold on to some close ones like Florida or um, Kansas, but you've got Republicans picking up uh, Illinois, Massachusetts, probably the biggest surprise of the night, Maryland, all deep blue states. Do Dave, do we look at these and, and tease out some winning formula for Republicans or is this primarily a function of, of local considerations in those kind of places? I think uh, Massachusetts, you had a uh, pretty bad uh, candidate. She lost the Senate seat earlier. 
Uh, Maryland, the Democratic candidate, wasn't too good. I, if I were the Democrats, I wouldn't count on winning those states on a regular basis That uh, unless you can get the formula to get Martha Coakley to continue to run in Massachusetts. So m- my view uh, is it was, a, it was a big election, but it's not an election that says the full Republican agenda of um, – that the full Republican agenda of repeal Obamacare – uh, whatever they're going to do on immigration, uh, the question, uh, and they're going to bring to this issue of uh, twenty uh, no abortions after 20 weeks. I do not think the election was a wave election or a mandate election in the sense that the people said, uh, here's the Republican agenda, we're for it. I think they said they were tired of the Obama, uh, Obama as president and the leadership. That's what it meant. There's no specifics associated with it. So, Mo, if that's the takeaway for the Republicans, what's the sort of top-line takeaway for the Democrats now that we have pretty much all the results except for the Senate race in, in Louisiana? What are the, the two or three principles they need to be taken away from the results here? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give me a small task. Okay, let me, uh, let me filibuster for a second here. I lived in Massachusetts for 16 years, and they elected uh, Republican governors the whole time I was there, uh, Bill Weld right. and uh, Paul, Paul Salucci. And the reason I felt they did it was because the legislature was so corrupt that people figured they had to have a, uh, a Republican governor to have some sort of semblance of control there. And I think the same thing is certainly true in, in Illinois, uh, where I think people realize the state is in just terrible shape. It's one of the Maybe the only state that's worse shaped in California in some ways. And um, Maryland, of course, was taxes. I, I think basically the, the takeaways, if you're a Democrat, and, and basically the one takeaway that is absolutely wrong is you're seeing a lot of people on the Democratic side saying they weren't liberal enough. They weren't right. progressive enough. The party has to move left. And that's the same uh, – when Republicans lose an election, you get the same sort of comment. They weren't conservative enough. We have to move right. Those sorts of sentiments are absolutely wrong when both parties uh, – in both parties' cases. And I think what the Democrats have to realize is the American people, especially after uh, some of the disappointments of the Obama administration, are basically skeptical about big government. They're basically skeptical about top-down government. Uh, trust in government is at an all-time low since the question has been asked. And so I think basically they're in, in a sense their their whole move toward having government do more things is just out of fashion with a big chunk of the electorate right now. So that would be my takeaway. And by the Republican side, um, basically the takeaway would be to try to provoke the uh, Republicans into doing something really stupid, uh, because that's at the moment if you're if you're sort of at a disadvantage, try to do something to bring down the other person. And so I think probably the Democrats right now, that's their optimal strategy is to try to provoke congressional Republicans to really do something stupid that sort of lessens their chances to win the presidency in 2016. Dave, you highlighted in one of our past podcasts this continued demographic problem that Republicans may have. Hispanics are at least a chunk of that. How do you see the prospect of President Obama – looks like he's going to take unilateral action on immigration over the objections of the Republican leadership in Congress. How do you see that affecting that dynamic going forward? Is this sort of a brilliant way for the president to catch Republicans on a wedge issue or does it end up blowing up in the White House's face? Well, you know, the president, he's got two years to go and so uh, he's got to make a choice whether he's going to work with the Republicans and this looks as though it's a signal that he's not going to work with them. In regard to the issue blowing up for the Republicans, I think it blow up, it can, could blow up on them and hurt them in 2016. 
if they uh, if they make a big ploy to say, uh, as some people have said, they should Chuck uh, Krauthammer said they should impeach the president, so on. I think what they should do is uh, bring suit and let the courts deal with the issue. Then they don't have to hammer away on the issue of uh, immigration and what it means. So I think the Republican leadership, Boehner and McConnell have to figure out ways to keep those sorts of issues to do exact to keep from doing what Mo said, i.e. keep from doing something stupid that's going to hurt you in the 2016 election. And I think that immigration issue is uh, solvable by saying we're going to bring suit and let the courts handle it. Mo, explain for us a little bit more. We mentioned the um, the ideological sorting earlier. How does that change the dynamic going forward? What do both Republicans and Democrats need to be thinking about going into the 2016 election, for instance, about how the dynamics have changed because of the kinds of trends that, that you profile in your research? Well, I think the, the problem that people running for office face is that within their own party, all their pressures now are to one side. If, if you're a Democrat, your base is more liberal than the country as a whole. If you're a Republican, your base is more conservative than the country as a whole. Right. And so the attempt to sort of move toward the center, to sort of capture that all-important center enough to win, uh, is just difficult. And then once you're in office, it becomes more difficult to govern, too, because if you govern in a way that meets the approval of the country as a whole, you're going to disappoint some elements of your base. And so I think both parties, in a sense, face a, a tactical uh, difficulty right now in terms of winning election and once you win, governing. And I think part of the reason we're seeing all the flip-flopping in recent years is just that in each case, the, the winning candidates run a little more centrist uh, than they actually attempt to govern, and then the electorate reacts against them in the next election. So I would like add just one bit to that, and, and that is that uh, while the Democrats and the Republicans have sorted, the number of people who call themselves independent, um, there may be some questions about exactly what that means of lean Democrat or lean Republican, but the number of people who answer that question, which has been asked the same way by Gallup since 1937, is at an all-time high. And, and the Republican and Democratic parties are not held in high esteem by the electorate. So I think what happens in these elections is just what Mo said. These people who are independent come up and say, you're too far left or you're too far right and get, get it back. Do something. We, we want you to govern. We want, we want you to have successful policy. And we're not that far left and we're not that far right. And if I could continue in the same vein, it's not just how far left and right you are, but the other thing that becomes apparent when you look at the poll data is you care about different issues, that the kinds of issues that animate the bases in the party are often not the kinds of issues that the country as a whole is concerned about. For example, this, the hot-button social issues like gay marriage and abortion, these are relatively unimportant to the population as a whole. People are concerned with bread-and-butter issues like their jobs, the state of the economy, their kids' education. Uh, they're concerned about things like terrorism. That so much, that so many of the issues that campaigns are fought on and that occupy so much attention in politics are really fairly minor in terms of what the country as a whole thinks about them. The Colorado Senate race, I think, is a great example of that. 
because there the candidate had been for the personhood amendment. He backed off on that, would favor contraceptives being sold over the counter. And in the process of doing though, when Udall, when doing that, when Udall ran his entire race, geared it to saying, I'm gonna turn out women and young voters who care about these issues, made a tactical error. The voters in Colorado care more about the economy. They care about those issues too, but they are definitely secondary. And it's not always a winner to uh, continue to hammer away at that theme. One other specific race that I want you guys to look at because it didn't change hands, so the story has sort of died off. But one of the biggest dramas on election night was the Senate race in Virginia. Mark Warner, freshman, incumbent Democrat, former governor there, generally regarded as solidly moderate and nearly knocked off by his Republican challenger, by Ed Gillespie. Very few people had that earmarked, almost no one, as a competitive race going into election night. Dave, do we know what happened there? Why that ended up being so close? No, and uh, I'm uh, pressing my colleague Doug Rivers and others <laughs> on that. Uh, it, you know, the, the fact is on the zero-one choices, who's going to win? Uh, we're, we're, pollsters were really, and particularly Doug, was really only, only Miss North Carolina. So in terms of who would win and who would lose, but the margins the margin in Colorado Senate rate, the margin in the uh, Arkansas Senate rate, those uh, we were really off on. And part of it is turnout. But uh, we don't uh, we're, we're in the process of uh, looking at a lot of data to try and figure out exactly why we missed it so badly. The margin, that is. So the, the final question that I'll put, put to each of you, and we'll do this for both parties. Um, Mo, let me start with you with the Democrats. If I'm a Democratic political strategist and I'm kind of coming out of this cycle looking at 2016, uh, what makes me nervous and, and what makes me hopeful? Well, I guess what makes me nervous is just the, uh, the depth of the, the losses just suffered and the fact there's going to be a lot of recriminations before the party can really pull itself together and come up with a strategy. And their candidates, um, I mean, I think the, is, is Hillary Clinton really the candidate going forward to, to capture the youth vote, et cetera? Um, but I, I mean, I, I think predicting two years ahead at this point, when you don't know who the Republican nominee is going to be, you don't know what's going to happen in Congress, you don't know what's going to happen in the world. You know, let's remember that one of the things that affected this election, I think, is just there was a steady string of bad news. It was just one thing after another, Ukraine, uh, uh, Syria, uh, Ebola, etc. And um, basically, I think people get put in a bad mood and it, it makes it makes difficult for politicians to react to, you know, how, what do you do about these things and gives you a, a sense of you're not, uh, you're not on top of things. Republicans, I think the question is going to be uh, basically not doing anything really dumb and coming up with some sort of uh, vision. It's just not going to be enough to win the next election on we're not Obama. I mean, I think they, I think coming up with some sort of uh, talk about the general interest. I mean, one of the discouraging things about uh, the last few elections, especially on the Democratic side, has been slicing and dicing the electorate that, okay, minorities, single women, uh, young people, etc. And you haven't heard people talk about the general interest. You haven't heard people talk as much about um, what's good for the country as a whole. And I think coming up with some sort of vision, um, I'm not saying this is the, the be all and the end all, but as people have a sense of, you know, we're trying to, to move forward for all of us and not just sort of, uh, you know, get 50.1% of the vote out there. 
And Dave, I'll let you have the, the yeah. last word on this. Same, same question. I worry. Well, I, I agree with uh, pretty much everything Mo said. But I, if I'm a Republican, the thing I worry most about is the primary system that moves through Iowa and South Carolina, where the Republican electorate on issues like immigration, uh, choice, and so on, uh, gay marriage are uh, much further right than the American public. And uh, what do those primaries knock out people who could actually uh, be more to the center and win? That's the main worry for them. And I think uh, just to add to what Mo said, and I, it's not clear to me that Hillary, Hillary Clinton, I know she's the favorite, et cetera, but Dan Baltz wrote a piece in the Washington Post that showed that the Democratic leadership has uh, pretty much aged. And I think that's something that they actually have to worry about a little bit. She's the front runner. She's got a lot of baggage. And uh, so that I, I'd worry a little bit about the fact that everybody thinks that the Democratic primaries are over because Hillary's uh, going to run, and that makes their leadership pretty old. All right. My guests have been Mo Fiorina, the Wendt Family Professor of Political Science at Stanford and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and David Brady, Davies Family Senior Fellow at Hoover and also a Professor of Political Science at Stanford. Gentlemen, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.